Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. If you want to follow along, it's on page 4 in the bulletin. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, and as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron, for reading that. This morning, we're beginning a brand new series for the new year. The teaching series will be called Liturgy for Life. And what we'll be doing is looking at each of the parts or the elements of our worship service, one by one. Saying that, I know maybe about five of you are like, yes, I'm so stoked for that. That's exactly what I need. I love you guys. And then the rest of you are like, hmm, sounds kind of boring. With all that's happening in these challenging times, how will that help me? So why are we doing this? Number one, it's important that we know why we do what we do here in weekly worship. How God can meet us, renew us, and work in us in each part of the service. Without it, things can get stale. We can forget why it is what we're doing what we're doing, and we can just go through the motions. We need to know why, and we need to know why the Bible teaches us to do it. Second, we need to know why it's important that we do it together as a gathered community in embodied worship. I know there are challenges to that, but that is the normal way that God meets us as his people. As a gathered community, we say, can I just sing in my car all alone and worship God? Yes. But is it the same thing as gathering here together and singing? No. Well, why is that and how? We need to talk about that. Thirdly, how our Sunday liturgy is formed and ordered is meant to give us a pattern for life. For every other day of the week. And this is something, and I hope to talk about this more, that we desperately need now. A liturgy that is ordered, that is regular, that is structured around Jesus. Especially when everything else is so uncertain and challenging. So some of my goals for us in this series would be that we would all more wholeheartedly connect with God in every single part of the Sunday worship experience or service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is writing to that church, 
And as he's writing to them, he says something. It's a little bit of an aside, but he says, when you're worshiping, and he says it's, it's, it should be orderly, it should be understandable. But sometimes when you're worshiping, people will come in who are unfamiliar with Jesus, and they will fall down and go, God is really among you. And part of my goal and vision for this series is that we would experience that, that God is really among us, not just in the singing or not just if it's a good sermon or whatever our favorite part is, but in every single part of our worship service. Different parts of the service would become highlights for all of you, and you would go, that was an amazing call to worship. It's exactly what I needed. Or in that prayer of confession, that's where the Lord met me, and I knew he was among us. Over the years at Trinity here, some people have told me, I love the liturgy, and I know some do, and some have said, I'm very unfamiliar with this. It's different than what I grew up with. Hard to get into it, and some have said, I've been here for a while. You know, the whole liturgy thing is not my thing. But as we look at this through the lens of Scripture and see the biblical basis and reason for it, I hope we'll all see why we need it all and why all of us need it all and how God can use all of it. My additional goal is that we begin the new year in a world that is marked by continued disruption and uncertainty with a fresh look at our own daily patterns, our own daily liturgy, and ask, how can it be more centered on Jesus? Maybe it's renewing some habits and rhythms. Maybe it's adding some in. But I want all of us to take ownership of our daily patterns and not just say, oh, I'm just so busy. I just go with the flow. I just do what I do. But in order to maintain a healthy and growing relationship with Jesus, this is my premise. We need a liturgy for life, not just for Sundays. One that connects us to God and renews us in the gospel every day. It's been a while, but in the last congregational survey that we did, and we asked people, what are some of the ways that you feel like you most need the help and the support of the church? One of the top responses was, I need to learn how to have everyday rhythms for faithfulness. And so this teaching series is a part of what I hope will help you all in that. Let's make a definition here, or let's set a definition. You're talking about liturgy, liturgy for life. What is it? In the Greek, it's, it's a compound word made up of two words, work and people, the work of the people. At the time, it was used of any public work that was done for the sake of the community. But the way that we use it is as an order and a pattern for our service of worship, for public worship. What we do when we gather to worship God in community. That's what we mean by liturgy. From that definition, we can see two things. One, every church has a liturgy. Sometimes we talk about churches, oh, it's liturgical or not. I think what we're getting at is some churches are more ordered and have more components to a liturgy and some do not. But every single church has an order, has a pattern. And that, that pattern rarely changes. With the season, some special components get added in, but every church has a liturgy. Some are simple, some are intentional. But why? Why does a church do what it does when it's gathered together? And that's what we'll be exploring. But not only does every church have a liturgy, every person has a liturgy. How you order the work of your day. 
from beginning to end as a service and a worship to God. Each Christian is called to develop that liturgy over the course of their life, a regular structure, pattern, habit of life. And everybody's liturgy ultimately is built on what they worship, what they consider most important and valuable to themselves. One very simple example is we take showers. Everybody takes a shower. Why? Because our health, our hygiene, smelling acceptable to the world and those around us is important to us. So we put it in our regular daily liturgy. So the goal is not about why our liturgy is the best or the only one. I'm not going to make that argument. I think it's a good one. It's not going to be about why ours is, is, uh, is better than the, the other churches around or anything like that. But it's going to be about why ours is the way it is and the power of each part. And how the way that we do it and the traditions that we draw from build the order and the structure of our service on the story of the gospel. So that every week we're reminded of the story that we are created by God to worship him. We are fallen from that purpose. We are redeemed in Jesus. We are sent by him and one day, he will renew all things. That's the story that each of our services seek to tell. We'll look at that, and we'll look at why, what we do on Sunday, and how it can form a pattern and a model for your own personal daily liturgy. So first in the series is how we begin all our services with the call to worship. And we'll be looking at Psalm 95 as we explore this. I have new outline points. Morning, they're not the ones on here. The third one's the same, but I changed up the first two. So we can go to that first point. The reason we are here. If you look at Psalm 95, first thing to notice about it is that it is a call. It is an invitation to a community of people to gather. Verse 1 says, come. Verse 6, it is repeated, come on. The word here is actually more than an invitation, it's an imperative or a command. Though it's written and used by people as God's word, this is God's command to us. God is commanding people, everybody come here to me, gather together, okay? If God is inviting or commanding people to come together, why? If we get an invitation from somebody, to come to a party, well, what's the occasion? Why? Or even more than that, if our work, if our boss says, no, you need to come in on the weekend and do overtime, you're commanded to come in. Why? We want to know why. Why is God calling? Why is he commanding people to come and gather? The answer is to worship. Verse 1, come. Why? Let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Let's shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Verse 6, come. Why? Let's worship and let's bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. So the best way to describe Psalm 95, what is it? It's a call to worship. This psalm was used when God called his people together into his presence, most likely in the temple, the place of worship, the centralized place of worship, 
or maybe in one of the festivals that happened throughout the calendar of Israel. This psalm, Psalm 95, is used throughout the history of the church. It actually has a special name in the Latin. It's the venite, which means come. Come to worship. It's making it clear to everyone. The reason you are gathered here, the reason you are here is to worship. You may have lots of different reasons for being here, for gathering here this morning at this church, at Trinity, whether you're online or here in this room. You may have things that you want to get out of it, but God's first reason for you being here is to worship. So, the call to worship is the first part of our service every single week. It is the reminder to us of why we are here. The reason we are gathered together is to worship. Now, there are a lot of other reasons the Bible gives us as to why we are here. Why we gather together. But Psalm 95 and other passages tell us that there is a reason that is primary. There is a reason that comes first. And all the other reasons will flow from this primary one. And that reason is worship. So we are not primarily here first to, say, follow rules from God and enforce those rules or moral codes. We are not here first to ask God for what we want. We're not here first to even learn new things about God. We're not here first to find out what God wants us to do. We're not here first even to change our lives for the better. We're not here first to feel better. We're not here first even to serve each other. Our first and primary reason why God gathers us together is to worship Him. And in fact, if those other things are done apart or without worship, they will actually lead us away from God and not closer to Him. I'll expand on that in the next point. But if this is true, if this is the primary and first reason God brings us into his very presence, we should be clear on exactly what is worship then and understanding how all this works. In this psalm, we're given two helpful parts to the definition of worship. We're given the outward expression of what it looks like. Worship is described in these very exuberant ways, shouting triumphantly and joyfully, and it's described in more humble and quiet terms like bowing down and kneeling. And that's what worship, it's a spectrum of worship of what it looks like in action. But we're also given in verse 3 the motive for our worship. And in verse 7, if you look at those verses with me. Verse 3, for, well, why? What's the reason we worship? Why? For God is a great God. God is a great king above all gods. And again in verse 7, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Based on that, let me just offer a very simple definition of worship. There are many, many ways that we could define it, many great ways out there. Here's one simple one, and we have a slide for that. 
What is it? Worship is recognizing and acknowledging who God is. That's kind of a boring definition compared to this psalm. That's like shout it joyfully and triumphantly. But trying to make it simple and clear, we could develop it. Worship is recognizing and acknowledging the ultimate worth, value, glory, and greatness of God. So, obvious point, but from this definition, we see that worship, when we talk about worship, it's not equal to singing. And sometimes we use the word worship like we're going to come and we're going to worship, we mean singing. Singing is a part of worship. Singing is commanded here as worship in this psalm. But worship is much broader than that. It includes everything that we do here and indeed everything we do in life is out of the awareness, the recognition, and the acknowledgement of who God is. In this way, the call to worship every Sunday is a reality check. It's a time for us to confront the question, am I living in reality or not? This psalm is saying God is to be worshipped for who he is. This is what is. This is the God who is. And so to be called into worship is to be given the reality check. How much have I recognized that? How much am I recognizing and acknowledging what is? There's a famous call to worship that goes back way, way, way back in the centuries called the Gloria Patri. It goes like this. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen. What has been true from eternity past, as far back as time, in time as we can imagine, before time, what is true right now and what will always be true into infinity and forever is the glory and the worthiness and the greatness and the holiness and the beauty of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the most foundational, the most basic, solid reality that there is. And so that is the call to worship, an invitation into reality. There's another sense in which the call to worship reminds us of the reason why we are here. Not just to remind us, why am I here at church? Why has God gathered me here? What am I doing here? But even deeper and more expansive than this, why are we here at all? Meaning, why do I exist? Why am I alive? Psalm 95 says, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Psalm 100, another call to worship says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. God made us to worship. That is why we are here. That is why we exist as the primary and first and starting point reason. In, our, in the summary of our statement of faith as a church, we call it the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In that summary, the very first question, some of you may know this, 
is a question that goes like this. What is our chief or our, our highest end as human beings? What is the chief end of human beings? And the answer is, humanity's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. It's not our only purpose. It's not our sole purpose. But it is the foremost, the highest, and the primary purpose. And this is the very core of life from which everything else flows. Recognizing and acknowledging who God is and all that he has done, is doing, and will do in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's where everything else flows from. Psalm 95 supports the merging together of joy and worship. If God made us for this purpose, then our greatest joy is to fulfill that purpose. That's why it says, shout joyfully, sing triumphantly. When are you the most joyful? Think about that. When are you the most joyful? Are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about that you're joyful? When we're most joyful and happy and we start saying, I'm joyful, then all of a sudden we're like, I'm not joyful anymore. What happened? I start thinking about myself and my own feelings of joy. We're most joyful when we're caught up, when we're totally absorbed in something else. An amazing piece of music, an incredible movie, the other person that we're with, whatever activity we love to do, we're totally caught up in it. We're not thinking about ourselves at all. The greatest joy we can have is to be totally lost, caught up, and raptured in the beauty and the greatness of the God who made us. That is true joy. So, the reality check of a call to worship. Why is it so important? Why do we do it? Why do you need it? It's a twofold reality check. One, who God is. Two, who we are. We are worshipers. That is our inescapable nature. David Foster Wallace, this is a quote at the beginning of the bulletin. I think we have it here. There it is. Not a Christian, as far as I know, but made this observation. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. To be human is to be a worshiper. To be God is to be worthy of worship. When these two realities are not connected together, they need to be reconnected. When they are not connected together, life breaks down. Joy is fleeting. Perspective is lost. And so they need to be over and over and over again reconnected. I am a worshiper. God is worthy of worship. And for all of us, they get, they get disconnected all the time, every day. And the sin beneath our sins is when we give value, glory, worth, and importance to anything more than God himself. And this happens all the time in the human heart, in my heart. 
This is why the first commandment is the first commandment, the first one. You shall have no other gods before me because all the rest of life flows from that first commandment. So, the call to worship. Why do we do it at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings? Is it something that you could just say, oh, I'll get there at 10.05? Well, I want to encourage you in light of this. You are a worshiper. God is worthy of your worship. When these things are not connected, everything else breaks down. So the first thing we do when we gather and stand together is to reconnect who God is and who we are. That's the reason why we worship and begin with the call to worship every Sunday because it's the reason why we're here. But the call to worship isn't something we just begin with and then we move on to the other things. Okay, I'm done with that part. What's next? What do I need to do next here? No, it's the posture and it's the attitude we carry into everything else that we do on Sunday in our worship service and in every part of our lives. The call to worship gives us the way to proceed. That's my second point. You can put that up there. The reason we are here and the way we proceed. If we don't proceed into the rest of what we do, there will be very little impact in the rest of the service on our hearts, on our lives. Let me share some examples. Confession, something we do each week as well. If we confess our sins and our need apart from an awareness of the holiness and the greatness and the all-importance of God. If our awareness of that is small and minimal and kind of in the back of our minds, then our confession will always be shallow and minimal and perfunctory. And the assurance that comes after the confession will be bland. Of course God forgives me because I'm not all that bad. I made a few mistakes here and there this week, but of course God will forgive. There is no change in that. There's no effect on the heart in that. There is no humility that comes from that. There's no joy of being forgiven, and there's no power to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's just words without an awareness of the greatness of God. Another example, prayer. As Jesus taught us, prayer should most often begin with adoration and praise. Hallowed be your name in prayer. The things that we think are so big, the things we go into prayer going, this is the big thing that I need God to do something about. When we come from an attitude and a posture of adoration and worship, sometimes we see them in their proper proportion. Say, this thing I thought was so big, now I can see it in light of God's greatness for what it is. The thing that we feel like, God, I need you to do this. I have to have this. We often, in prayer, from a place of adoration, even before we ask about it, we remember, oh, God, you are faithful. You are great. In light of your infinite wisdom, I can release that. I thought I needed it. But before I even asked for it, because I was in an attitude of worship, I realized I can release it. Or maybe the conflict we had that we thought that was somebody else's fault. And we were going to prayer to say, God, change this person. Work on them in light of worshiping God in his holiness and faithfulness. 
we thought we were going to ask God to change them, and we realized, no. Now I see myself, Riley. I need to be changed. You see, without beginning in worship, we rush into prayer with our agenda. But worship as the attitude and posture of prayer puts it into proper perspective. It's like if you are one of Jeff Bezos' kids, I looked it up, he has kids, I didn't know. And you run into his office in a panic and say, I'm about to leave on a trip and I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have my, my supplies, I don't have the right clothes, I don't have what I need. He'll probably just say, I'm Jeff Bezos. I own Amazon. It will be okay. It's a silly illustration, but the point is, all Jeff Bezos, I am Jeff Bezos. What are you worried about? Do you not remember who I am? Often as we're worried and anxious and running into prayer with all kinds of things, the first thing we need to remember is who it is that we're talking to. Our Heavenly Father. Another example, when we listen to the word, we can listen to gain information to get a helpful application. We can listen to learn something or maybe to think about and question or critique the theology and the interpretation. All that has a place, but first and foremost, when we listen to the reading of Scripture and to the preaching of the Word, we are to listen to it as the voice of the all-glorious and sovereign God. Look at verse 7. This is the transition in the psalm where it says, Today, if you hear His voice, the voice of the one who made you, the voice of the great king who is above all things. Whenever we open up the word, whenever we listen to the word, whenever we hear it read, this is the attitude and the posture that we need to listen to the word. An attitude of worship. A posture of worship. We could look at every part of the worship service and give that illustration, but we won't have time for all of that. But if we don't proceed into all of what we do on Sundays with a posture and an attitude of worship, we will miss the power of what each of those parts of the service is intended to do. We were driving up, up into the snow, uh, Big Bear last week, and a lot of us went up to the snow and there are a lot of signs like icy, proceed with caution, all over the place. And that sign that proceed with caution is not just, hey, proceed with caution for the next, you know, few feet behind this sign. It is the entire way. As long as you are here in the mountainous snow and ice, proceed and drive with caution. If you don't, well, you might drive right off the mountain or slip and slide all over the place. In the same way, the call to worship is not just the beginning of the service, it is the way to proceed throughout our worship as we are gathered together. And that's why it's first. Quick thought on why it's important that we gather and hear this call to worship together. Come, let us, here in Psalm 95, verse 1, these are plural words. These are plural statements. These are for a community. This is a call not just to an individual, but for a community to gather. It's not just talking about private or personal worship. It's talking about corporate worship in a community. 
Why isn't our worship alone in the mountains enough? It's this very important to have personal times of worship. I'm going to talk about that next. But we also need to be called to worship together as a community. And one of the reasons why is because as we come here week after week, life can be so hard. We can feel defeated. We can feel guilty. We can feel distracted. We can feel self-focused. We can feel spiritually flat. Like we can't recognize and see and properly acknowledge God for who he is. And so in the call to worship, it's not me or whoever's up here calling us to worship. It's God through our voices together as a community telling each other, remember. Remember when it's hard. Remember when you forget. Remember when you can't see. God is worthy of our worship. Let's see him together. And in hearing all of us call each other to worship God, there's something deeply powerful about us being able to recognize and go, oh, yeah, I've forgotten. But I see my brother or sister, my friend and community worshiping God for who he is. And my heart remembers. My heart gets the reality check it needs. More could be said about that, but I want to move on to my final point. Why do we need this every day? Would you look at verse 7 with me? This is a transition in the psalm. It's a very abrupt transition. If you're, if you're reading it again or if you heard it when Aaron read it, it's like, whoa. I thought we were like in joyful exuberance and this was worship. And then it's like, boom, there's a warning. What's happening? This is where the importance of the call to worship is brought into the everyday. Look at verse 7, the second half. Today. Today, if you hear his voice, Psalm 95 is not just a liturgy for the gathered community. It is in a worship service. It is a liturgy for today, for every single day. It's a crucial part of our personal liturgy every day. Hebrews 3 and 4 speak about this as well. Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 and says, today, I want to talk to you about today, everyone. He says, you need to encounter what Psalm 95 has to say every single day. Now, the warning, it seems so abrupt and out of place. It's like it interrupts the call to worship. But why is it here? It tells us what happens when you don't respond from the heart to the call to worship. What happens when you don't have a regular liturgy of God himself, of hearing God himself call you? To worship him. Verse 7 through 11 says, Today, hear his voice. And that's a warning. But what is God's voice saying? It's saying what it was saying in verses 1 through 6. Come and worship, joyfully recognize and acknowledge that God is all important, that God is all glorious and all central and more valuable than any other thing. Now, here's the thing that we need to realize. Every day, we are called to worship. We are called to worship something. It's not a choice of whether we listen to the voice of God calling us to worship, 
There are many, many voices calling us to worship. Many, many things saying this is more important. This is the all-valuable thing that you need to build your life on. This today is the most important thing. This today should set the agenda for your life. This today will bring you joy. This today will give you life. Every day we're called to worship. And if we don't hear the voice of God calling us to worship every day and respond to him, we will hear the voices of many other things calling us to worship. And remember what we said? We are worshipers. We long to find the thing that will give us joy, the thing to build our lives around, the thing to value, the thing of all importance. And so we can all ask ourselves, what is that first thing that we wake up to? What is that first thing that's on our mind? What is that thing that we feel like we have to have in order to be happy and joyful? That if we don't have, we'll fall apart. I was doing a quick study of the New Testament, just typed in the search, worship. And so the trivia question for this morning is, what New Testament book has the most occurrences of the word worship. There are other synonyms for worship like praise and honor and glorify and stuff, but just worship. It's the book of Revelation. And the entire point of the book of Revelation, the, the title of the book of Revelation is, is Apocalypse, which means an unveiling, which is an un, uh, unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain. What's really going on in this world all around me. One of the more well-known references that includes the word worship is Revelation 14.9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, these will experience the judgment. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about what is the mark of the beast and no one has gotten it right because everybody's been wrong so far. And it's not, this is not telling us, hey, look, look for a vaccine or a microchip or anything like that. That is not the intention of this passage. It is saying, look at what you worship. Do you know that behind all of politics, do you know that behind all of the economy, do you know that behind everything that is built independent of God and on his honor and glory is worship? Things that are telling you, you need this to be joyful. You need this to be complete. You need this to be important. You need this to be accepted. You need this to have control. The book of Revelation is saying human life The way that we build our systems of life is built to offer us a counterfeit worship. And it's exposing that. Now, here is the wisdom then of the liturgy. Of every historic order of worship, the ACTS model for praying, that goes back to at least the 1500s, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Ten Commandments that begin with the First Commandment, all begin with worship. They call the worship adore and praise God before and above anything else. If we live in a world where we are facing a contention for our hearts, for our worship, 
if every day we wake up and we hear many voices saying, this is what you need, this is the most important thing, then every day we need to begin in some way with reminding ourselves of who it is that deserves our worship. There are certain things we do every day that we cannot live without. For me, that is coffee. Last week, I said we were up in Big Bear and we got there and it was a moment of just like, oh man, we parked our cars on an icy driveway and it was like really steep. And we got there and I looked at the coffee machine. I'm like, oh no, we forgot coffee. What are we going to do? So we had to get out every day. I have to have coffee. I'm sorry. If that's, <laughs> that's just my, you know, that's my benign addiction. Hopefully it's benign. The call to worship. Some way of hearing the voice of God himself tell us, I made you for me. I made you to know and enjoy me. Every single one of us needs that. We can't live without that. But how do we know when we are not carrying this attitude, this posture, whether it be here on Sundays or into our daily lives? How do we know we're missing that call to worship? How do we know when things are off? Well, Psalm 95 tells us, and there's a sign here in this psalm that you're not carrying the call to worship as the posture of your life. And the sign here is mainly for my Christian friends, people who go to church a lot, who have experienced that as a part of their lives. And it's in verse 8. I'll summarize it by calling it grumbling and complaining. Psalm 95 goes back to a story in the life of Israel. It's from Exodus 17. So there's a kind of grumbling and complaining that will harden your heart to the reality of God. Now, there is a type of complaint and lament that God tells us is worship. Many examples of these raw, gut-wrenching, honest, softening and opening of the heart to God as a complaint, but this is something different. It says today, don't harden your hearts as on that day. It's talking about the day that's recorded in Exodus 17 at a place that was named Massah and Meribah. Those words mean testing and quarreling or complaining. In the wilderness, after having been rescued from Egypt, in a place with no water, they get there and they start complaining. And they start saying, why are we here? We came here just to die? Let's go back. Life was better before God. Let's go back to Egypt. And they were saying, is God really here or not? Here is the sign. Here is the sign that we're missing the call to worship. It's this, the reality of God has little to no impact on your daily challenges, tests, and trials. God had just delivered them from the strongest nation on, on earth and the strongest person in the world in a dramatic way. He led them through the Red Sea, through the desert. He was a cloud and a, pi a pillar of fire by night. But they didn't daily remember and recognize those things. And so when a challenge came up, they said, where's God? He's not here. He never was here. Who is he? We're going to die. God is not here. But that's not all that goes on in that story. 
because their hearts were hardened. They had completely missed the reality of God. What could soften their heart? What can soften the cynical heart when we lose sight of God when things are challenging? What can soften the heart that doesn't feel like worshiping, but we're weighed down by complaining and grumbling about life that forgets who God is and what God has done? God is saying here, what? He's in the story, haven't you seen what I've done? Haven't you seen how I delivered you from Egypt and I showed you all my power and I brought you all out by grace through the waters of death into life? Have you ever really worshipped me for who I am? Do you think I'd abandon you now to die, that I'm not really here? The people deserved to be struck down. But instead of the people being struck down, the story is that the rock was struck. And out of the rock came water and life to these people who were not acknowledging God for who he was, who had completely forgotten him and completely missed the point despite all that he had shown to them. They should have been struck down, but the rock was struck down and out came water, life-giving water. Striking is a key word from the Exodus story. You can look it up. God struck the Egyptians with plagues over and over again. He struck them, he struck them, he struck them because of their oppression of Israel. Moses strikes the water of the Nile with a staff and it goes, it turns to blood in judgment. It's a word of judgment, but God says here, I'm not going to strike the people. I'm going to strike the rock. And in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are told that the rock was Christ. People who don't worship God for who he is and what he deserves deserve being struck down in judgment and death. A life apart from God is a life apart from life. How could we? But that's not what happens. The rock is struck and life-giving water flows to them. And so the beginning of the psalm says, let's shout with joy to the rock of our salvation. This is how God softens the heart to worship. That when we come and gather week after week and in our daily times and say, God, and we come complaining, where are you? Where have you been? I'm doubting, I'm struggling, I'm heavy, I'm weary, and it feels like you're not there, and that's the honest place of our heart. We remember what Psalm 95 says, hey, remember today what God did on that day. He didn't strike the people. It was the rock that was struck. It was Jesus who took what we deserve to be struck in order that we could have a life. And Psalm 95 is saying, let that strike your heart. Let that soften your heart. And know that the God of all gloriness, gloriousness and holiness and honor and power and greatness is the God of all grace. And the psalm ends on a tragic note of warning the whole generation didn't get it. But he's not just saying, hey, remember about that, what happened back then. He's telling us. They never responded to the voice of God saying, come and know me, worship me, and enjoy me. They never responded. But we're meant to ask, what about us? What about you? Will you respond today and every day? 
Let's ask God for the grace to do that. Father, thank you for this call to worship, Psalm 95. Thank you that it reminds us of what is the great reality, that you are the God of all glory, greatness, and goodness, and grace. We so easily lose sight of that. We forget, like the people in the wilderness, our challenges overwhelm us, and they seem to drive you out of the picture. But I thank you that on these days, on Sundays and every day of the week, you re-enter the picture. And I pray that you would help us to establish that rhythm, help us to have soft and open hearts to remember all of who you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.